Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Jordans, here with your producer, Molly Stevens. And here in the Leader Stable podcast, it is our job to dissect leaders in policy and education, to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success in order to empower you. This episode, we sat down with Luis Avila, Senior Vice President of 270 Strategies and former National Program Director at Stanford Children, talking about bringing art, love, and beauty into the equity movement. So Luis is like a renaissance man of change and advocacy. He organizes, he educates, and he translates community to decision makers. But I think the real gems here are in getting to know what Luis does outside of his advocacy work. Definitely so many gems. Since I'm not a huge fan personally of traditional happy hour networking, I really like Luis's ideas about how to maintain and grow authentic, meaningful relationships with the leaders in your life. Absolutely. If you can't tell, we're excited to share this one. Luis is just an amazing person with lots of insights on organizing, advocacy, and just life. Now, let's let you listen to Luis Avila at the leader's table. All right. Uh, Luis, thank you so much for joining the, the, the leaders table. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for the invite. Great. So I'm excited to talk with you. I think um, the the role of organizer is one that that not everyone appreciates in uh, in the way that policy gets done or the way that advocacy um, happens in the in the United States. So really looking looking forward to, to digging in with you on your career on how the role of organizer and organizing helps to move uh, ideas and uh, and law and of course to talk to you a lot about Latinos in education. I'm really looking forward to it. So tell me a little bit about 270 Strategies and, uh, and what your, your current role is, and then I want to talk a little bit about Stanford Children as well. Yeah, so 270 Strategies is a, it's a company that came out of the Obama campaign in 2012 um, after you know, the tremendous uh, work that they did in mobilizing and engaging volunteers and voters in 2008 and 2012. Um, that some of the field leadership and, and organizing leadership in the campaign got together and thought, how can we transfer some of these uh, lessons learned to kind of like a broader, uh, a broader space, right? How, do, how does this translate into advocacy? How does this translate into um, nonprofit work or uh, even corporate work or, you know, for people who want to run for office? So they created 270 Strategies as a way to uh, help people engage constituencies or engaged communities uh, to take action uh, on or usually progressive causes that, that we care about. We're a very mission-driven organization. And, you know, we work with uh, over 200 organizations all across the country and all, on, all over the world. And uh, we're really proud of the work we do. Um, we do everything from, you know, small school board races uh, all the way to advising the presidential campaign. Interesting. So what is the, when we think, a lot of times when we think about organizing, we think about very, very grassroots issues. We think about like the, in a community, you have a stop sign or you have a, a place where a, um, a crosswalk has resulted in a lot of deaths and a, and a community banding together to get the town to put in a new stop sign or, or a stop light. What, what type of organizing, how does that relate to the type of organizing that you do? Yeah, so the reality is that uh, I think people have different terminologies for, commu- for community organizing, right? For, 
for me personally, um, community organizing, it's about identifying, um, assessing and training leadership uh, in, in local communities so they can take action uh, on behalf of their families, on behalf of themselves or for themselves or uh, to, to improve uh, society. And I think too often we see uh, organizing as, uh, an, as an output, right? Something that is uh, in to, to change policy. When in reality, um, it's the building of leadership uh, and the development of leadership in communities so they can continue uh, working for the betterment of society. And that is something that I, I really attracts me about community organizing. So w- when you give the example, for example, of the, of the uh, stoplight uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a neighborhood, too often that might be uh, the first time that people get involved because that's something that really they really care about. It's their self-interest, right? Or it could be other things um, like attending a rally and getting inspired by the message of, uh, from someone or hearing the story of a person that has been oppressed uh, and being inspired by that and wanting to take action. So I always say that organizers are fire starters, right? We, we go to a place and we feel a sense of urgency. We raise the consciousness of the person and then we identify people who have leadership potential so they can actually mobilize and engage other people to take action uh, on behalf of sometimes a policy. Um, sometimes it's just uh, a change in public narrative, right? It's not uh, particularly to a policy uh, perspective. So I believe that that community organizing, it's a lot more about leadership and, and less about the, the policy inputs that we have. The policy inputs are great wins, but they're just a step uh, for a better society. Sure. You know, the other place where people think about organizing is usually in the political space. Um, and the uh, a friend of mine who's been organizing for about 40 years always says, you know, Jason, we our main problem is we have a kind of a gaslight approach to, to, to organizing. Every four years, a national campaign raises up a, um, um, a coalition and starts organizing in communities, but then in the individual times in between those 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 big elections, there's not enough effort to get p- uh, particularly people of color, uh, Latinos, African Americans are poor, uh, they're poor um, constituents in rural areas to be civically engaged. So is that is that something is that an idea that you also bring into your organizing work? Yes, and look, I, I, I think about that the difference between organizing and mobilization, right? And, and we hear this a lot, but the way that I always put it is, uh, it's like if you take electricity, right, and, and you think about how electricity manifests itself. And, and the way that I always talk to community members about this is, you can see lightning, right? Um, yeah, you can see lightning uh, as unexpected, as something beautiful and powerful, but something that you can't call on, right? It happens all of a sudden. And that's mobilization, right? Those are things... Uh, that are uh, unexpected, uh, that happen once, right? It could be, for example, crossing a bridge with thousands of families uh, to take an action on behalf of choice, or it could be a Black Lives Matter uh, uh, demonstration, or it could be right, like uh, some uh, a mobilization for equity in the local school board. But those are not always sustained actions, right? Because they are uh, these one moment of, uh, that produce these kind of high sparks of electricity. But then there's the other side where actually you can uh, build a grid, right? Uh, build a system that channels that electricity. And the way that I look at that system is that you actually develop the, the leadership, right? The wiring that allows to connect to uh, a light bulb or uh, to a set of light bulbs that is the community activity, the community action. And, you know, the power of, of this type of organizing is that you have a switch, right? You can turn it on and turn it off. The challenge with that is that it's not always the most attractive type of organizing, right? So it's not always what's on the first, uh, on the cover of the the newspaper or where it's highlighted when people talk about community organizing because it happens so slowly and it happens in such long term that it's not always attractive. Now, there are people who are trying to kind of create hybrid models of community organizing between those two. But you're right. I mean, what, what, we, what we do in campaigns, uh, it's, it's more than community organizing, really. It's, it's electoral organizing. Uh, it's making sure that we identify supporters, persuade people uh, to come out and vote, and then get out the vote, right? Like that is kind of like what we do every election, uh, build capacity, uh, persuade, and get out the vote. And that's every, fi- every, five, every four years for, for some elections, every two years for others. But that's the same process over and over again. Um, what I would say community organizing is it's 
it's a lot a lot deeper uh, and really it's about changing communities um, from from the community up rather than from the policy down mm-hmm. what are some of the your your favorite examples of of kind of organizing wins who where where has organizing made the biggest difference for local or state communities that, that you've uh, that you've seen? I mean, I've seen it all over the I've seen it all over the country, right? But uh, some of the examples that I've personally uh, been able to to see is is the work of Dreamers, right? Um, uh, Dreamers uh, have done this kind of hybrid system of organizing, right? Where uh, back in two thousand four, when uh, Senator Brenner, Senator Senator Brenner wanted to uh, pass a, a anti-immigrant legislation in the federal uh, in Congress. Uh, there was a huge reaction around the country. There was lightning, right? There were these huge marches of sometimes mm-hmm. up to 300,000 people in some small cities, 20,000 people came in, coming out to the streets, right? But there wasn't kind of like this planned way of taking that energy and chan- channeling to something else, right? Well, we, we, the slogan became, today we march, tomorrow we vote. Uh, and we are kind of starting to see that, but we we haven't seen the the numbers of those people who march coming out to the polls yet. And I think it's it's a little by little that happens. But what I want to pull out of that is that there were very young kids back then that we didn't even call dreamers. The Dream Act was introduced in 2001, and it was led by people like me, documented people who wanted to stand up for what was right, who had friends or family members who were undocumented, and we considered that it was our role to be the advocates because they couldn't, right? Uh, and there was a moment in, in, in that kind of spark in 2004 when dreamers started coming out of the shadows and saying, I'm undocumented, I'm, I'm unafraid. And they not only started doing direct action against uh, elected officials to push for the DREAM Act uh, or push for different policies, but they started actually creating organizations. These young people started creating uh, coalitions, uh, started creating really sophisticated voting operations, electoral operations, lobbying, right? And And... That is a good example of how good community organizing led by the people that are most impacted actually make the biggest change. Because what we were pushing everyone in the federal government, everyone in Washington, D.C., to make a change in immigration, and unfortunately we haven't been able to pass immigration reform, the Dreamers were able to actually push the president so much that he had to take action in 2012 uh, during this election. For example, they, they did things in his, in his offices, right? They did vigils outside of senators' houses and congressmen's houses and congresswomen's houses. And they were actually taking direct action against them in a way that allowed for policy to change, right? The president came out uh, after saying for years that he couldn't take executive action. He came out and not only passed DACA uh, to benefit DREAMers, but actually passed, uh, uh, signed DAPA uh, a couple of years later, to benefit the parents of, of U.S. citizens as well. So I think that's a very good example of how sustained community organizing. These dreamers didn't give up after an election. They didn't give up after a loss in Congress because this is their life. They have to continue doing this work until, until they see it resolved. And sometimes in elections, the people who, who, are, who are involved in elections, uh, we, we are doing this because we believe the person we're electing is the best person. But then after that, Sometimes there's no follow-up or holding the person accountable to make sure that the promises that were made continue to be made, to continue to be executed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I talk with uh, Eliane Ramos every now and again, and um, you know, Gabby Pacheco, who's kind of become one of the one of the kind of recognized leaders of the of the Dreamer movement, and, uh, and even listen to them on panels. There's always this conversation about whether the Dreamers are organizing as a as a ground unit. Or is it just a Twitter army, or is it just a social media army? And what what I find really interesting is, you know, the the first kind of large scale um, immigration rallies that you were talking about earlier were as inspired by radio, right? It was Pedro Biaggi in in the D.C. area, uh, Piolin, right? The folks that were um, that were driving people out to, to take action. And now that, that, that activity lives both in digital, right? The, the dreamers are a very, very active group on social media and also in, uh, in, in local actions. Do you think that that is the future of, of organizing? Is it going to be, is it going to be continue to be this kind of amorphous, um, kind of we're united by social, we're united on digital. And then every once in a while we do think, 
is on the ground as well? Yeah, I don't think it's one or the other nowadays because we don't live one or the other in our regular lives, right? Like, I don't mm-hmm. wake up and think, am I going to live my life online or offline today? I live my life seamlessly, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's the way that we organize nowadays in an integrated way. So I, I actually... I actually don't believe that there's such a thing as an only, like an, an online movement only, um, because we still need the plaza, we still need the the, the vigil, we still need the, the direct action, right? So while there's all this uh, stuff happening with Black Lives Matter online, there are still sit-ins, there are still rallies, they're still taking activity and action. Uh, on the ground, and and that still continues to happen. I think that social media is just uh, another outlet to communicate with people, a very effective outlet to communicate with people that we are utilizing more and more. And it's changing so differently, so, so much, that even those of us who do this for a living have always had to be doing more and more um, experimentation, more and more involvement, and giving more opportunities for young people to actually lead movements so we can learn more about the ways to communicate. I mean, one example is why right, there are all these talking heads in Twitter uh, you know, jabbing at each other or like commenting on what's happening politically, the majority of young people are Snapchatting and they are actually mobilizing with Snapchat, right? And and there it is there is an example that a year ago we couldn't even be talking about this, right? So mm. I actually think that social media it's a it's a place where we will continue to evolve in the ways of communication, but what I call the plaza, where I call the place where we actually come and take action in person, has to continue to be there. Um, in the Arab, the Arab Spring, right, uh, that happened in in the, in the majority of countries in the Middle East uh, for a, for a moment, uh, and and some some parts of East Africa, um, they were doing a lot online and they were communicating online. They were doing training online. They were protecting each other online. But at the end of the day, they showed up at the plaza on night to march, right? That plaza needs to exist, and it, it will forever exist. What do you think of the, the would be the main? If you could do one or two things to to create a, a stronger connection between the the clear online organization and the clear online energy, and and showing up to vote in November, particularly for Latinos, what would that be? I mean, the reality, I think, is that, uh, unfortunately, um, we are still treating Latinos like they are this one huge segment, right? Um, we, we understand as Latinos that we, we have different Latinidades, right? Um, I was born in Mexico. I'm a, I'm a Mexican living in the United States. I'm an immigrant, right? Um, and, and I understand that myself. Uh, my mother uh, considers herself Mexican. My brother considers himself uh, a Latino, uh, my my sister uh, kind of identifies a little bit more uh, with you know the the, the Latinx uh, uh, movement. So we have like all these ways of expressing our identity. Yet in the political world, we try to group us all for political purposes into this one bucket, right? And I think that the mistake that we're making is that we're trying to communicate with Latinos in this one way. Uh, online and offline. And that is, that is a detriment to our community because that actually stops the creativity of our community uh, by kind of exemplifying Latinos in one way only. This is the way that one Latino voter looks, right? This is the way that a successful Latino looks. Uh, this is the way um, a hardworking Latino uh, looks. And I believe that we are way more than that. So in the future, um, the most successful political campaigns and the most successful advocacy campaigns that target Latinos for mobilization will be those who understand that and are able to actually segment Latinos in a good, smart way, just like we do with other populations, right? Mm -hmm. When we are talking about uh, other populations, we actually talk about uh, particular demographics, particular ages, particular generations, particular geographies. We need to do more of of that with the Latino community, which means that we need to invest more on the research, uh, on the organizations already doing this work, uh, on, on the people who are doing this successfully on the ground, rather than you know, throwing a lot of money to organizations that are new in the space, um, that are treating Latinos like a big bucket of people. That's just not who we are, and, and that's, I think, a big, a big weakness of us right now. Absolutely. I think it's important to, to remember that the this whole idea that the national Latino community is relatively new. Um, it, you know, in 1998, I was a, C, a Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute intern while I was in college. 
And, you know, I'm a, a Cuban American, grew up in New York, which meant that I thought that the world was Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, a small group of Cubans, and I'm, there were some other people out in the world. I come to Washington, D.C., and I walk into this room of, of kind of 30 young Latino leaders like myself, and, and I was amazed at all the, all the Mexicans and Tejanos and Chicanos and, and people that I, I, I had no idea. And then there were like two, two Puerto Ricans, uh, two, uh, uh, two Cubans and, and, and maybe one Dominican. And I was floored. I was floored at, at that young age to see the diversity of, of the Latino community only because, you know, we grew up in our own regional context. And at that point, New York was a very, very Caribbean, uh, driven Latino community. This whole, That's like, right. I think, I, I think... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. So I was going to say really quick, I, I think that the critical thing here from what you're sharing is that we also see in research that Latinos are um, crossing uh, and, and doing, uh, going to interracial inter, uh, marriage a lot more than other communities, right? So we are hearing Latinos, um, you know, with kids who are of mixed race. Uh, we all ourselves are of mixed race, right? Most Latinos are. Uh, which is something very interesting to think about, right? So, you know, just to think about the Latino identity as uh, as a true melting pot, it's true, right? We we have so much in us, right? Uh, uh, that that it's really hard to kind of pinpoint what Latino means, right? So this this new identity, I think, it's something that that benefits us as a political force, but it's also put like if if not treated correctly, it actually hinders our ability to express ourselves as a creative. Uh, as a cultural producer, as, uh, not only as an uh, as a as, um, uh, as someone who receives information as an audience, but actually as producers of content, as as leaders, as funders, as uh, directors, as managers, right? Like we are not just an audience; we're way more than that. And when we treat Latinos as just an audience, then we just become that, and we don't have the power we need for the future. Uh, I think that's so well said. The, the one of the main one of the my my big pet peeves is this idea of of Latinos and other people of color as consumers only, as opposed to as opposed to owners of the narrative or owners of of content or uh, developers of of um, developers of business and and other things. That's, I would love to have a whole conversation just about that. But I, I, I that what you just said really uh, pushes a button for me. Let me. Uh, I want to ask you about how this translates to re- translates to community or- communities organizing around educational equity. Um, I know that so much of your work around at at Stanford Children was uh, as about doing exactly that. So I'd love to to talk for a few minutes about what you about some of those experiences in organizing um, for uh, educational change, and what are some of the lessons that you took from that work. Well, I think what, one of the most important things that I realized uh, when I got into community organizing in, in education is that uh, there are kind of like two assumptions that I learned pretty quick that, um, that were out there that I'm still struggling on how to make sure that I confront and push back on, right? Um, one, the first one is that um, I hear this too, too often of like, uh, these particular families don't care, right? Or these particular families are not engaged. And I, am, I, I share the story of my mother very often uh, with people. I feel like you know, if, 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 if I know anyone in education, they probably know the story of my mother because I, I lived in Mexico. I grew up in Mexico. I came to the United States when I was 19, um, and so I was already an adult. And, and when I was in, in Mexico, um, my father was a, a very, very smart man who tried to different it's an entrepreneur who tried very different business um ideas unfortunately uh he's one of those guys who just things didn't work right he went into a business and 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 didn't didn't go go well he tried another one uh so we we struggle economically in in some parts of our of our lives uh they worked very hard though to give us the best that they could but but there were times that we were struggling a lot and and my mother being the 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 fighter that she is decided to come to the United States uh, seasonally to come and work. Right. Um, we were very, very lucky that my father at a very young age actually uh, was a, 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 a migrant worker in the United States and he was able to apply for a green card that, that about 18 years later, my, my mother, uh, myself and my sister received uh, as well. 
So my mother actually uh, worked in the United States seasonally. She would come uh, for a few months, work as a taxi driver, uh, work cleaning offices, and then go back to Mexico to spend time with us. And I remember very, very clearly that she would call and ask me how I was doing in school. Uh, she wouldn't probably know the name of my teacher or the name of my, of my school, but she would ask me all the time how I was doing in school. And, and what were my grades, right? And every time I gave her my grades, and if I had a, a B or a C or in Mexico, what we call a 10 or a 9 or a 9 or an 8, she would ask me why. And she would say, that's, that's not you. You know, I expect more of you. And I remember very clearly that um, that was something that, I, that really mattered for me, uh, that my mother had high expectations of me. But when I moved to the United States, uh, I went to a meeting in a school, and I remember the teacher telling me to translate to my mother, um, these words, she said, because your mother is not engaged with us, we want to make sure that we find a way to communicate with her. Mm-hmm. And that just clicked in my head. And I said, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you to judge my mother's engagement in my education by how good you are or how bad you are talking to her, right? Or opening lines of communication. So what I think is one of the biggest weaknesses of our education uh, uh, sector is that we've done a really bad job at actually identifying or defining what family engagement is. Mm. Um, and that really hinders the ability for us to not only engage families in academic information, but engage families in social and community building aspects and engage families in advocacy as well. So we keep doing the same things over and over again without different results, and we keep doing it in many ways. I mean, parents, families around the country, they receive an average of 400 flyers a year. That is just unacceptable. I mean, that, there's no system in this country that does that. The DMV is considered one of the most inefficient uh, institutions in the country, yet they have online scheduling now, yet you can communicate with them by email in some states, yet they have a much faster uh, uh, goals now on, on services, right? Why can't so, we do Larissa, that in the education I, side? I, I have to tell you, when we start comparing ourselves to the DMV, that, that's actually a pretty scary thought. Absolutely. And that's exactly the bar that I am looking at, right? Because if we cannot communicate with families who are supposed to be going, coming to our schools every day in a good way, how, how are we expecting families to even understand what's happening in our schools, right? Yeah. So yeah. I actually believe that there's a difference between families getting engaged in their or involved in their kids' education and getting involved in the school. For too long, family involvement or family engagement has become physical presence of the families in the school. Uh, and I know that that's not organizing, right? but I think that that is exactly the place where we should be looking at. We can't expect families to know that we have a deficit in, in school funding, right? When we are not able to even communicate to them what a tax credit is in tax season, uh, when they, they would are able to donate to a school, or when we are not able to communicate why the school the class sizes are so big, right? So I actually think that that is one of the areas that I learned quickly that it's a weakness. So a lot of the work that I do is trying to figure out how do we communicate with families in more efficient ways? How do we make sure that there's a clear understanding from the school side that not everybody's an advocate, but if we try to remove obstacles and inform and engage families in a good way, they will take action more often than not. Are there, do you think that when it comes to community organizing and we think about organizing Latino no families versus versus others. Is there something special, or like a? Is it, I mean, the, the difference. The difference, and, I, and I've done. I mean, as, as a national program director for Stanford Children, I had the, the privilege of working with very diverse communities around the country, um, in different different populations. And one of the things that I realized really quick is that we have assumptions of each other that are just not true, right? Like sometimes I presented in in, in front of more affluent families. And they refer to low-income families as people who just didn't know how the education system worked. But they didn't know that I was doing the same presentation I did with the other families and that they mm-hmm. both were as unaware of the system uh, as, as, as they were, right? But there, there's kind of like this assumption that more affluent families understand the system more because they communicate with the school more. But that doesn't mean they actually know what power means, right? That doesn't, that doesn't mean that they know how to access power, change things. Uh, in a good way. They can advocate for their child, probably, but they cannot advocate for the, for the system to change. And, and I think that what I learned about Latino families is that, I mean, just like my mother, uh, who migrated for me and my, fa- and my brother and sister to have a better life, 
there are parents out there in the Latino community who cross deserts, who cross oceans, who put their lives in danger to be here. And we know that as Latinos. We know that. And that's a sense of pride that we have. So that is something that I constantly tap into when I'm talking to Latino families, right? Like, why, why, why would we do all this uh, to not allow our kids to be successful, right? So when the school system um, doesn't respond at the same expectation or, the, or, or at the same level of quality that they need for them to thrive, it's when parents should be on fire, right? And that is the job of the organizer, to go there and raise their consciousness to understand there is something for you to do with this inequality. There is for something for you to do with this inequity. And I'm going to explain what that is so you can actually access it and take action on it. Because I've seen parents say, I am afraid of going to the street because I might get deported, but I will definitely show up to the school board and testify because of my children, right? Mm. So there is this kind of like really clear, direct uh, opportunity for us to tap into the into the family's uh, desire for their children to have a better life. Absolutely. You know, we have a very famous community organizer um, that you may have heard of uh, named Barack Obama. He's been in the, the White House for about uh, you know, <laughs> seven and a half years. Um, is he a a role model for other organizers uh, in the work? I mean, for me, um, is he's a role model in the way that he, he brought community organizers into politics, right? Like he brought community organizing uh, nationally as a, as a mainstream concept, right? Um, it became, it, it, it kind of turned from Salinsky community organizing to Obama's community organizing, right? And that, that I think has some benefits because it allows us to talk about community organizing in a, in a, more often and it allows us to actually try to define it in many ways. Uh, so it's not something that is obscure or something that, you know, a particular demographic or a particular group of people utilize. So I like that uh, about, about this. Now, I, I think there are many role models um, out there for community organizing, and usually they're not names that we know, right? Um, I'm, I'm going to tell you, for example, in, in, in Arizona, uh, in, in Phoenix, um, after SBK 70, they, uh, one of the worst anti-immigrant bills that have ever been passed in, in the country, uh, a new generation of young people came up, right? Um, and they are now running everything from city council races, school board races. Some of them are now in the school board. Uh, they now are consultants uh, to other people to know they, how to take action, how to advocate. Uh, some of them are now in you know, different parts of the country. And I believe that when oppression, um, when oppression becomes so clear and so uh, heavy for our communities, we stand up and we fight back. And I have that uh, always in my head. And the question is, if I know that's going to happen, what is my role, right? Do I become a coach? Do I become um, a supporter? Right? Do I show up? Am I a general? Am I a soldier? What is my role in this moment uh, when people are standing up for their rights? And that is the constant question we should be asking ourselves as organizers. Mm-hmm. If I'm a teacher today um, or someone who's really engaged with, with children and families, but I, I see myself making a, more of a difference as an organizer, what are the first couple of steps that I should take to um, – to, to, to making that real? Look, when, I, when working with teachers, uh, I actually have a, 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 you know, doing community organizing, you not only work with communities, we don't treat them as clients, we build relationships, right? So they're our friends. <laughs> and and a very, very, very good teacher uh, in Arizona, Rebecca, it's a, it became a, a very good friend of mine uh, because of the community organizing work that we were doing together. And one thing she told me something that really stuck with me, that, and she said, Look, as a teacher, I'm in the classroom by myself a lot of the time with children, right? And I'm trying to manage the classroom. I'm trying to hit the benchmarks that I have, uh, make sure the instruction is of high quality. There's so much happening in the classroom that I forget that there's a world out there, right? I forget that there are other people like me trying to make this world a better place. So I don't always see the opportunity to connect with something bigger than myself. And, and I think that that is a really critical a really critical opportunity for us, right? Uh, uh, to think about how do we help teachers understand that they are not alone, uh, that they can actually connect with other teachers who are like-minded, who have high expectations of children and want to see communities thrive, right? So for me, one of the most critical things when working with teachers is to make sure that we put them together in rooms, 
create social opportunities, create community building opportunities that are not focused on policy, which is what we do so much, right? But are focused on their experience of teachers. So one of my biggest surprises when working with teachers is that when I ask them, why are you a teacher? They have a hard time actually uh, explaining it, right? Because they've been with their head down, working so hard all the time that sometimes we forget why we started doing this, right? So that's the first question I ask teachers. Why did you become a teacher? Tell me why. And then we talk about it and we try to kind of go back to that inspirational moment or that aspirational moment when they said, I'm going to do this because I want to do better for society. I want to, you know, be, uh, put myself out there uh, in the classroom to you know, help these kids thrive in life. And that is beautiful. So having the opportunity of teachers connect at that level is the first step. Because then after that, you actually provide the opportunity to understand power, right? And the fact that together we can make difference and we can make a difference in, commu- in communities and societies. And after that, I think the future is just, you know, endless. We can connect them with families. We can connect them with kids and students uh, to make sure that we can create a more um, broader coalition as well. Absolutely. Have you seen um, uh, teacher-led movements or, or movements that have included teachers in, in, um, in significant ways to, to drive change? I mean, there are, I think, efforts everywhere. I think E4E, Education for Excellence, Educators for Excellence are are doing a a lot of amazing work. I mean, I think that um, there are organizations like Hope Street Group that have been doing these fellowships that bring teachers together, right? And and they do surveys and they kind of connect with their teachers and they create this kind of sense of community, right? But I believe that at the end of the day, um, we're not doing enough to bring teachers together and connect them about conscience, conscience raising or consciousness raising rather than policy-related issues. We, a lot of times, bring teachers at the end, right? Like there's a policy already that brings teachers to see how we implement it. And by then, the teachers that are coming are usually the ones that are there already, right? <laughs> the ones that already understand the concept. If we started earlier, uh, actually, there will be a lot more buy-in, a lot more process for them to create movement. So. I would say uh, that is a weakness of the uh, education sector that we should address because, to be honest, um, particularly uh, some uh, uh, teacher unions, some teacher organizations are just not doing enough to do that. Um, They are not doing enough to bring teachers together to think what are the challenges that not only our workforce has, but, you know, the kids have in the classroom, how do we solve them because this is our job. Uh, and I think that teachers want that. Teachers desire that. And when you talk to them, you can see it, uh, that their job is so overwhelming that having a little bit of light and seeing that other people like them are, are exist in the world is something that is very energizing and empowering. Absolutely. It's interesting. I think that the, the, the chief... Um, the chief job of, of organizing is um, is to educate, and second is to connect. Right? This uh, the world is tough. I think it's tough for teachers. I think it's tough for organizers. It's tough, just tough for anyone who really cares about their community. But anything that is hard is better when we are connected and knowledgeable together. Um, and so yeah, I, and I will I, go even a little farther. I will go a little farther than just like the, the education and, and kind of like the mobilization piece because there is a piece here about leadership and, and leadership assessment, right, and leadership empowering. And I think what happens too often is that we say, oh, here's the policy. We're going to educate you on that. What do you think? And if a person supports it, and we say, oh, you should support it and testify or you should support it and show up, you should, right? And that is not showing, that is not developing leadership in a way that is sustainable, right, that is helping them learn how to take action, which is good and it's amazing, but we should also try to say, what are the ways that we're testing these people so they also build the you know, strategic capacity that we need in the teacher for the teaching workforce? That strategic capacity has to happen more often because if, if dreamers were able to do it in such a fast pace, in such a quick time, why aren't we able to do it in the education reform world faster as well? Mm-hmm. Well, Luis, this has uh, been such a fascinating conversation for me. I, I, you know, as I said, I thoroughly respect the work of of organizing and and organizers. Um, I think there are so many people that are developing policy in um, in legislative bodies or administrative bodies at the federal level and the state level who have never really connected or touched real communities that those policies affect. Never been in a place to uh, either to teach or to or, to, or another way another. Uh, and other ways to connect with communities that are deeply, deeply affected on a daily basis by the choices that are being made. Um, so I 
I really appreciate the insights that you've uh, you've shared here. I just uh, I want to ask you just a few questions uh, about how you keep it all together. Um, typically on the leader's table, we spend a bit of time just uh, investigating your daily habits, the, th- the ways that you prime your day for success, um, and some of the tips and tricks, the tools that you use to um, to manage your life. Um, so as an organizer, you are managing a lot of stakeholders, constituents, and um, and 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 touch points. You have a lot of uh, of pieces to keep together. What's the most important thing that you do every day to prime your day for success? So you know, it, when I'm when I'm, when I'm doing campaigns, it's kind of like always trying to be above water, right? Like uh, during a presidential campaign or uh, during an intense campaign. Uh, most of what I do is uh, I just try work, to work harder than the other side, right? So there, I know there are going to be long days when I'm in campaign mode. Uh, I know that I'm going to make sacrifices. So I talk to my loved ones about kind of like that timeline and how it looks like. Um, and I also try to not be distracted by what's happening outside, right? I'm, I, I, it's going to sound bad, but I just, when I'm on campaigns, I usually don't read Polls, or I don't read, you know, opinion, or I don't read any of that because what I'm doing is trying to move as many people as we can and instill a sense of urgency. And these things are kind of like so fluctuate so much. They're such a distraction for me and for others. But when I am in, in not in campaigns, and I think that it's the most the majority of my life, um, I do a few things. So one of them is that I, I actually have reminders in my calendar, um, and I have three reminders. One of them is. I have a reminder um, to reach out to someone that I want to see grow. And this is something that usually I do on Mondays. Uh, it's a quick reminder in my calendar that tells me, hey, reach out to a person you want to see grow, you know, a younger person maybe that you want to help out, right? So I usually email them to see how they're doing. I, I have a list on that uh, invite of people that I want to check in with. And I keep adding people. Sometimes I take people out. But um, that's something that keeps reminding me that, if I want to really, if I really want to change uh, and improve societies in the future, there has to be a younger generation behind me and a younger generation behind that to do that work. So, what is my role to make that happen? So that's that's something that happens usually early in the week. Later in the week on on Wednesdays, I have a reminder to reach out to someone that I know uh, will be a critical partner in the next few in the next few months or in the next few weeks or in the next few days. And I have an ongoing list in that invite uh, to remind me of, of reaching out to them. Very often, it's more than one person. Very often, it's three to four people that I actually say, hey, this is very critical. Uh, our partnership is very critical in the next few days. So I either set up talking with them or if I visit their city, I make sure that I catch up uh, with them as well. And then finally, I, I have actually reminders um, to make sure that I take care of myself and, and take care of others. Um, we so often uh, try to, to, you know, look at outside world and try to see how we can improve communities, but we don't take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, I am a creative. I am a creative person. I do theater. I like. I do writing and I do reading and and I like to do that. So very often I schedule calls uh, during the week uh, that are outside of my quote unquote work, right? And and I learn about things. Uh, the, the artists or. Um, People that are not doing the stuff that I do, because there's something about community organizing that I that I believe is that we work in the world of ideas, right? We're trying to change things that are not tangible. So we it seems that we never finish our work, right? We don't see a completion of our work. So what I usually do is try to get involved in projects that I know I can see the completion of it, right? Building something, uh, putting a project with a timeline that I know is going to result on something that I can see it finished. Um, sometimes it's as simple as uh, writing a blog post or as simple as tr- translating a, a text uh, or reading a book that I want to make sure that in my life I sometimes have closure. <laughs> and that is something that I do for myself very often. And, of course, I finally say um, I try as much as I can to volunteer. I am really busy. We all are. But mm-hmm. I try to volunteer in areas that I'm not usually working on. So I do so much in education that I usually don't do stuff in education. Uh, I volunteer a lot with arts organizations. I volunteer a lot uh, with organizations that have to do uh, with mass incarceration um, mm-hmm. and helping people re-enter society. Uh, I go to my library every Sunday and I volunteer. And, you know, usually they just make me clean the shelves and water the plants, and that's cool with me, right? <laughs> that's what I do, uh, and I love it. And sometimes I say, like, do you want to do something else? Like, this is cool. I like this. 
uh, and there are these kind of like different phases of my life and different um, uh, kind of like different views of my life that I like to to keep. So I am not what I do. I am more than that. Like. Hmm. That's really, that's quite inspiring, I have to tell you. Is there a, I'm, I'm interested in what your reminders actually physically look like. Are these um, uh, reminders daily on your calendar to breathe or to read or to, to do something creative or are they monthly, kind of monthly things that are on your to-do list to write, um, to, to give, to, to explore a creative idea? Yeah, I have these three reminders. The one about reaching out to loved ones, uh, reach, reaching out to someone that I want to be kind of working with, a partner, and reaching out to someone I want to see grow. Those ones are on a weekly basis. Uh, they just show up. Um, but I do set reminders uh, about other things. So, for example, at the end of the year, I usually write a letter uh, to people that, uh, that inspire me or change my life. Every December, I actually sit down for most of half a day and write letters to people that I feel like they, they've impacted my life in some way or another. So I have an ongoing list of that, right? Like who are people that I meet that I know uh, made a big impact in my life? And I tell them why. And, and you know, that is, that is so powerful and so important. And, and so often people don't hear it. We are in living this society where we say, I love you and I appreciate you so often that sometimes it kind of like becomes mechanic, right? Mm-hmm. So I try to actually spend some time reflecting on I am not on my own, right? So who are the people who are around me who are helping me shape uh, who I am and who am I going to become that I try to keep a list of people that are, that are doing that for me and that I'm, that I'm reaching out to thank them uh, at the end of the year. And I do it, of course, uh, throughout the year, but that's something that I keep doing. The, the reminder is actually like a calendar invite. That's what I do uh, for all of these things. Um, I also put blank space or uh, what I call creative space on my, on my calendar. And too often, right, we are not the owners of our calendars. <laughs> People add stuff. Um, and every time someone tries to add something to my calendar in that creative space, I push back and I say, no, this is my time. I manage my time. Nobody else does, right? It's the same thing on the other way. When someone tells me, I didn't ask you because I know you're busy, I say, you never assume. Because the moment you assume, you're t- taking the power away from me to make a decision. And it's kind of like you're oppressing me, right? You're deciding for me. And that's not the way I roll. So next time, you let me make the decision, just make the ask. And that's the way I live my life. Um, I own my own time. I know how much I'm going to take. And if I'm taking too much, I know that too, which is usually mm-hmm. true. Usually I'm taking on too much. But that's who I am, right? And I try to take Absolutely. on too much if, if it's mixed with stuff that is going to keep me creative, that's going to keep me happy, that is going to keep me connected and grateful. It's quite an inspiring um it's quite an inspiring way to think about your time and what you choose to defend. I think is, it says everything about who you are as a person. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Is no, there, thank you. Um, thank you for this. If, if you were to give advice to, to, uh, to someone who wants to do what you are doing today, have the opportunities that you are, what, what are the, what are the couple of things that you would, you would encourage them to do as they build their career? I would say, Always be humble. I mean, one of the things that I, I encounter in this work is that too often we see community organizing uh, as, a, as a, a step to something else, right? To running for office, to get into the political world, to get a, a, a higher job. I, I've hired a lot of people who say, I just want to do this for a few months so I can then do X, right? And, and that, that's something that I, I find, you know, disheartening um, because mm-hmm. the work that we do with communities is very, very important. Um, we have a responsibility when we touch someone's life uh, to make sure that we leave that person better than when we, when we contacted them, that community better than when we came, right? And, and so I believe that if you want to get into this work, you have to be humble. Uh, you have to know that at times you're going to have to, you know, stay until really late doing data entry or stay till really late uh, making phone calls. I say, Stay humble and never ask anyone what you wouldn't do yourself, right? That's something that I keep my in my head. And the second thing is, like, if you want to do community organizing, you have to hustle. <laughs> uh, we do a lot of things that, um, you know, that are not sexy or not attractive, right? Like, we sometimes spend a long time getting no's, knocking doors, meeting people who, you know, seem to not be interested. Uh, so we have to make sure that we see this as a hustle and we have to continue doing it uh, because there's been decades, uh, centuries of oppression um, that we've lived in different communities 
And we can't think that taking a job as a community organizing for six months is going to change that. There's just mm-hmm. no way. We have to make sure that we do this as a commitment. And I see myself doing this for a long time. I don't know if I'm going to do it as a coach. I'm going to do it as a campaign person. I'm going to do it right. Like, what is my role? But I'm going to be on this uh, for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Luis, thank you. Um, both for your your insight, your energy, the ideas, the things that all the, the, that you've shared in this podcast. I've truly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Really, I'm humbled by the experience, and 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 I really really look forward uh, to continue the, com- the conversation in the future. We will make your uh, your social sites and um, and your your platforms available. What's the, the best way for for people to get in contact with you? So uh, you can find me on Twitter at Piniquera, which is P-H-O-E-N-I-K-E-R-A. <laughs> That's really difficult. It's like Phoenix with K-E-R-A at the end, basically. And you can we'll always just sure. Google Luis Avila 270 and, and that you'll find everything. Okay, we'll make sure to put uh, put that in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Have a good night. Have a good day. Uh, you, you too. Like this interview? Subscribe to the Leaders Table podcast on SoundCloud. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the Leaders Table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. 